Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything Deep Sea. It's great to Deep Sea you again. Did you abyss us? No. I've, I've galvanised now. I've galvanised on the on the catchphrases. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me is Eco Magazine Deep Sea Hero, Dr. Alan Jameson. Congratulations, mate. Thanks. I don't know what to say. It's a great honour. I'd like to thank. And <laughs> <laughs> also good to see Heather Ritchie in there as well. Well deserved. Yeah, friend of the show, Heather Ritchie, who told that story about being Wonder Woman and raising our spirits. And Malcolm Clark, a Kaharua classic. We used to work with him quite a lot in New Zealand. The, the list made me realise how small our community is, because there's... Yeah. Most of those people I'd sort of not just know of, but know personally. If I got in and went to that award, then it must be quite a small pool. <laughs> <laughs> there couldn't have been many other options. <laughs> What's been going on in the news recently? And I've been paying attention for a change. I've spotted some things, so we've got to... Are there squiddy things? Well, one of them is, it's just it's just a squiddy time of year. The big fin squid has been seen in Australian waters for the first time. So this is the, the Magna Pinna. And I particularly like this one because it is an old monster. In 2007, uh, Fugro ROV, working for Shell, recording a riser on an oil platform. And it was already hanging there and the ROV sort of wheeled around and caught sight of it. And I'll put the link up as well. It's, it's a classic scary video about the deep sea that's floating around online. It's a low light camera, so it's really green. The camera's really shaky and jerky, and there's no scale in the image. The squid's not helping either, actually, because they hang almost like jellyfish, basically. They trail these long tentacles in order to, to catch food. So they've got the big fins that give them their name, so they're ominously flapping to keep their body up at the top. And they have elbows, so their arms have sort of a 90 degree kink in them. So they go out almost like a, a child's mobile. These long arms hang down. But in this shaky, almost found footage, ROV footage, it's it's really ominous. Like it, there's no sound to the video, but you just feel like it should be going, oh, you know, it, it really does look creepy. Well, my favorite comment on the video was, uh, <laughs> some say the original observers are still screaming to this day, which I, I'll push back on the whole monster thing, but I found that really funny. So it's great to have this new footage and to show these animals well illuminated with good cameras uh, and to show what the animals are really like. And it's a lovely open access paper with loads of new observations of behavior, uh, the variation in the different sexes and the size of the animals. So it's not just we've seen it again and we've seen it again in Australian waters. We now know a lot more about how these animals move and what they do in the water. So I'll put that in the show notes as well as a link and you can learn a bit about the big fin squid. Uh, second news story, over 100 Sanafabranchid eels. So that's the highest number of animals at a baited camera. And this was at 3,000, well, just over 3,000 meters at a seamount base in a place called the Clariton Clipperton Zone, which we're going to hear more about and hear why maybe scientists are doing a lot more research around there and why that might be important. So that's going to come up later. This also gives me an excuse to talk about the Sanafabranchids because they've got an interesting name. So in my regular segment, uh, an ass fish by any other name would smell as sweet, where we talk about the interesting names of deep sea fish. The Sanafabranchid eels, uh, so Sanafabranchidae, it comes from Sanaptus, which means united, and brancus meaning gill. And it refers to the fact that they've got a single gill opening under the neck. So under the head of the animal, the gills almost join to a single slit. That gives them their common name, which is the cutthroat eels. 
because somebody reckoned it looked like their throat had been slit. We have a whole group of eels, actually the most abundant uh, group of eels at Bathiel Depth. They're, they're really good deep sea specialists, but we decide that they all look like they've had their throat slit, which is a bit grim. And that is the news for this episode. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome, mate. I did some reading. I didn't know that. That's why they're called cutthroat eels. Yeah. I didn't know it because no one's ever told me before, so I've, I've learned something today. There you go. I knew this section had a point. <laughs> Deep sea mining is something we're going to talk about quite a lot this episode. We've even got two guests this time, not one, but two. And that's because deep sea mining is a big subject and we're not going to delve too deep into it because you could probably do an entire podcast on deep sea mining alone. It has all sorts of elements to it which are both interesting, fascinating, encouraging, tragic, every <laughs> every colour of the rainbow to be honest. For those unfamiliar with deep sea mining, it's, a, it's where large areas of polymetallic nodules or active or extinct hydrothermal vents create these what are called massive sulphide deposits. And these contain lots of interesting and particularly valuable metals such as silver, gold, and copper, manganese, cobalt, zinc. All these metals that we need as a civilization to satisfy a rising demand in technology. That's the bottom line is we need stuff and there's stuff on the seafloor. The problem is to get the stuff on the seafloor, we destroy the seafloor. And that's where there's a lot of this contentiousness comes from. So they're basically, in a nutshell, there are three different types of, of mining, which I'm going to use Tom Linley as a beautiful assistant to, to demonstrate this through a series of analogies. So the first is sucking up polymetallic nodules, or let's call them manganese nodules, from abyssal plains. Right? So manganese nodules are basically fist-size black, what look like rocks, just lying on the seafloor, and these are highly valuable. So the process of that is, if you imagine Tom's been in the supermarket and he's just bought two big bags of vegan potatoes in, in big paper <laughs> bags, and he's walking out into the rain on a wet Newcastle afternoon, and the rain gets to his paper bag, and all these vegan potatoes end up strewn across the car park. If I happen to be coming along in my little street cleaning vehicle and gingerly suck them all up in my little machine, that's essentially what they're doing there, except it's probably a thousand times more aggressive than that. Right? I, so, lots I of little balls. I have multiple questions about that. And I... <laughs> Don't worry about it. Just move on, Tom. Just, just move on. Just, okay. All right. All right. And uh, another another one would be like stripping cobalt crust from seamounts. Seamounts are this, this thousands of seamounts, tens of thousands of seamounts. A lot of them have got uh, high cobalt concentrations on them. So the way to do that is, if you imagine I was doing a, an art project in my art yurt and I needed some metal and I went around to Tom's house and just started ripping the, the exterior off of his uh, Austin Allegro uh, and took them, took them back to my house to build my art in my yurt. That would be analogous to seamount, cobalt mining, right? Is that right, Tom? That sounds about right. I'd, I'd give up. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Extracting polymetallic sulfates from hydrothermal vents is a little bit like forestry. Hydrothermal vents are big, tall things. I guess you can go and take rocks around it. but So it's basically if I was wanting to build something out of wood, I'd go around Tom's house and just cut his trees down and take them. Basically, in a nutshell, it's, it's, it's all about potatoes, allegros, and trees. This is why we need someone else to explain deep sea mining, and we'll get to that in a minute. The important point is that Many seafloor minerals are in great demand for use in things like smartphones, supercomputers, electric cars, solar panels, wind farms, and all sorts of other new technologies. And cobalt, for instance, is branded as the world's primary technology metal. And it's an element increasingly needed in the production of lithium-ion batteries to power technologies like smartphones and electric cars. Now, going back to the news, it, wasn't, it was only last week, I think, that Boris Johnson came out with this plan that put a ban on new petrol and diesel cars in the UK from 2030, and everything's got to go to electric. That's great news used for greenhouse gases and air pollution and everything else, but then what it does do is say, right, we need a lot of cobalt. Where are we going to get that from? So anyway, so deep sea mining raises questions about environmental impact, obviously. When you remove the seafloor, the greatest environmental impact is probably the fact that the seafloor is not there anymore, and that can be devastating if you live on the seafloor. Uh, again, that's why we need to bring someone else in to explain this in better detail. But we're looking at 
areas which can be as deep as 5,000 meters. You know, really large scale disruption of ecosystems we don't entirely understand. I mean, the, some of these things, are, it goes back to this whole concept of human scale that we were talking about before. Like, there are some places in the Pacific, certainly, which are earmarked for mining, which are just absolutely massive. Many scientists have argued that seabed mining should just not be permitted or at best cautiously permitted pending constant re-evaluation and so on. Going back to more newsworthy items, deep sea mining popped up in the news last week. China broke its own record for the deepest man dive to the world's deepest place, the Challenger Deep. They got to 10,909 metres in the new submersible, which I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of that, but it's a Chinese word for striver. And so we congratulate the Chinese and it's a great achievement. I think they did nine dives in the end, I'm not sure. But the headline was China breaks national record for Mariana Trench manned dive amid race for deep sea resources. This is not a scientific thing in the, in the normal sense of the word. This seems to be a quite a deliberate technology to assess the seafloor for minerals that can be extracted. Weirdly enough, the chief designer of the submersible was quoted on Chinese state-run media of saying that the, the high-tech submersible will help them draw a treasure map, quote, of the deep sea, and it was important to better understand the international strategic landscape. So they've been quite honest about it. They've built a submersible and they're going to go down and look for stuff to take out. The guy went on to explain that, for example, Japan recently discovered rare earth resources in the Pacific Ocean, where the recoverable reserves are said to be about a thousand times more than on land, so the ocean floor is a whole new world. They said if it don't explore others well. So there does appear to be that you know the wording in that is really important. The wording in that is multiple times is saying we don't do it, someone else will. And they're quite honest and open in saying we're doing it to exploit the resources. So here we are, 2020, superpowers engaging in what appears to be some sort of high pressure tech heavy gold rush in the deep sea, although probably the slowest rush ever, but it is happening. There's a CNN article as well that was out. They also said that in 2018, the Japanese researchers made what was described as a game-changing find on a small island in the Pacific Ocean where millions of tons of extremely valuable rare earth metals were discovered in nearby deep-sea mud. The same year, Reuters reported that India was preparing to spend more than a billion dollars over a decade to search for huge areas of seafloor for any sign of rare earth metals or minerals that could potentially be extracted. In fact, four days ago, India announced that as quickly as within three or four months, they want to launch what's called their deep ocean mission, described as a futuristic and game-changing. That's one step up from the Japanese game-changing, then there is futuristic and game-changing. Their official said on NDTV that the mission will be about designing manned submersible technologies with for the possibility of deep sea mining and developing the technologies to do so. So India have got earmarked a 150,000 square kilometre area of the Indian Ocean, signed up on a 15-year contract with the ISA, which is the International Seabed Authority, which we'll hear a lot about soon. So according to International Seabed Authority, China, Japan, Russia and South Korea all hold exploration contracts in areas, for example, in the North Pacific, where several species of black coral have been recently discovered on deep sea mounts and in a place called the Prime Crust Zone that stretches from the Mariana Trench all the way to Hawaiian Islands. This is where you start to get into this complicated web of world economics, of technology races, of exploration races, of resource exploitation, resource exploration, science and environmental concerns and politics and everything else. Scientists are pretty much called for a ban or at least a, a hell of a lot of precautionary legislation of deep sea mining and deep sea mining companies are pretty much all for it by <laughs> by the very nature of what they do and in the middle is this international seabed authority so we're going to explore a little bit about that in a minute with our second guest our first guest though as i have demonstrated my ability to articulate the finer details of deep sea mining is limited so we have brought in a professional 
We brought in Professor Jeff Drazen, who's from the Department of Oceanography at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He's a veteran of the big US institutes such as Scripps and Embari. He's a fish enthusiast at home and at work, and particularly the deep sea flavoured fish. He spends a lot of time at sea, we've worked with him a lot. He's won awards for his teaching and he's an all-round lovely nice guy. He's our favourite Jeff of all time. Bizarrely, he hasn't aged a day in 17 years. But anyway, so Jeff joins us now from Hawaii. Hello Jeff. How are you, Alan? Good, good, good. So today, I want to talk about over the last, say, I would say 10 years, is this whole idea of deep sea mining, of moving a, quite an agricultural filling uh, industry into deep water, which is then in the backyard of where guys like you have been doing the science for years and years and years and years. First of all, for those who don't know what deep sea mining is, can you just explain briefly what scale of what they're after, what, how, they, how they intend to operate in, in, in deep water? Sure. Deep sea mining has been an idea that has been around for many decades. But recently, there's been a resurging interest in deep sea mining. There are minerals on the seafloor, such as cobalt and nickel and copper, rare earth elements, even gold, silver, depending on where in the deep ocean you're looking. And we now have over seven and a half billion people on this planet and the need for metals is very high. Probably what's pushing forward the latest interest in deep sea mining more than just a general need for metals though, is that we are trying to move to a renewable energy economy. And that means we need batteries. We need batteries to store power generated from wind and solar. And we have a huge need for that. Those batteries are currently made out of metals. And so there is a huge drive to seek these metals on the seafloor. There are three main kinds of metal deposits in the deep ocean. The first is at hydrothermal vents. This is where uh, you have plates converging or splitting apart on the ocean floor. And you have magma that, super, that percolates through rock, superheats, when it hits magma deep in the rock and drives a lot of minerals out of that rock, they dissolve and they go shooting back in, into, you know, as, as vents of, of water spewing into the ocean. And, and when that superheated and now mineral laden water hits the cold ocean, you get what are called black smokers or white smokers. All of those minerals precipitate. They all, they all come out of solution and they drop to the bottom. Those create metal deposits, and they're rich in zinc and silver and gold. You also have metals that simply glom onto hard surfaces over millions of years in the ocean. And so there are underwater mountains, and they have, they're of course made out of rock, most, not all exclusively, of course, but, but largely. And over millions of years, metals like manganese and cobalt have precipitated onto these rocks and created a film, a crust. And those crusts have the cobalt and manganese, some of which we need for, for these batteries and other uses. So that's, we've got vents, we've got seamounts. And then the last major deposit is that in areas of the abyssal plains, these are the very open, deepest areas of, of the ocean. And in certain places on these abyssal plains in the ocean, this is 3,000 to 6,000 meters deep, there, there are metals that precipitate out of the water, uh, sometimes around a shark tooth, and they create these 
potato-sized nodules. They almost look like rocks, but of course they haven't formed. They're not geologically anything like a rock. They're kind of like those seamount crusts. And they yeah. just, they're layers that have grown over millions of years that are rich in copper, nickel, cobalt, and manganese. And a lot of those metals are used in batteries and they cover the seafloor. There, there are two main mining areas right near Hawaii where I work uh, to our south and all the way across towards Central America is the Clarion-Clipperton zone. And this zone is covered with these manganese nodules. And there are currently 16 licenses to explore these metal resources that were issued by the International Seabed Authority. This is the international body. All of this is on the high seas, or a lot of it is. And yeah. so they, it's an international body. If you go to our west off of Hawaii, you have the prime crust zone, which is a region of the Pacific Basin where there are a host of seamounts that are many, many million, 100 million years old. So they have these very thick crusts of cobalt on them. And so there are several mining claims or exploration claims at this stage in that area as well. So all done and told, I think this is something most people don't realize, but there are over a million and a half square kilometers of seafloor that are under license to be explored for mining. It's, it's an enormous area. Just that manganese nodule area called the Clarion-Clipperton zone that I just mentioned, if you were to take that region and superimpose it on the continental United States, it would stretch from California all the way to New England. It's immense. So mining of these resources could be one of the largest anthropogenic alterations to the surface of our planet that we engage in. So what's your gut feeling in terms of where this industry is right now? I mean, when we talk about the size of those licensed areas, realistically, how much could the industry actually mine let's say, over a period of 10 years. Do you think it's in a situation where we're looking at a mass-scale destruction of huge tens of thousands of square miles of seafloor, or is it something that's going to happen over a much longer timescale? The estimates vary. Uh, it depends on a huge number of factors. And so any number I give here, you know, you have to realize there's, there's a lot of error around it. Yeah, sure. We anticipate, and if we start at the small scale where we have a little bit more certainty, an individual mining company mining manganese nodules out on the abyssal seafloor, they're going to have to invest billions of dollars in the infrastructure, the ships, the robotic vehicles to operate on the seafloor. You know, th these are big scale operations and they're probably to be able to make their money back are going to need to mine, we estimate, something between 300 and 600 square kilometers of seafloor per year. Wow. That's a lot of seafloor. Yeah. You add that up over 15 years. This is just one contractor, just one company. And that's, you know, you, you rapidly approach, uh, you know, something in the neighborhood of potentially 15,000 square kilometers in 10 years. That's the direct impact. When we, when we look at it from the mining perspective, you know, that yields quite a lot of mineral resource. But you have to realize that the indirect effects of this mining, they expand well beyond the footprint that I just talked about, because these mining vehicles, what, what the current plans are, 
And keep in mind, many of the plans of the companies are confidential, et cetera, and so details are, are lacking. But all companies envision some kind of collector vehicle that will drive across the seafloor. And it's going to scoop up the top layer of the mud and all of these nodules down to a depth of about 10 centimeters or so. And it's going to do this in a track that is probably five meters or more wide. All of those nodules and the mud, hopefully will be some separation between the, the nodules and the mud at the seafloor, but a lot of material will be shot up a pipe, probably hydraulically lifted, meaning just shot up with seawater yeah. to the surface. It's gonna go 4,000, 5,000 meters up to a ship where the ore will need to be separated from all of the mud and the seawater. So two things are gonna happen. One, as this vehicle drives across the seafloor, there's going to be damage from the direct impact. That's going to kill the fauna, it's gonna remove the nodules, which actually support about half of the big megafauna that live on the seafloor, corals, sea anemones, uh, barnacles, things of this nature. But there's also going to be a big cloud of mud behind the vehicle. The mud on the deep sea floor is really fine clay. These areas are hundreds to thousands of miles away from land. This is very fine material that has sifted down to the bottom. And so when it gets spewed back up into the water column, it's going to take a while before it settles again. And that cloud of mud is going to drop over the seafloor and smother organisms. These organisms normally only experience mud settling down at a rate of a few millimeters in a thousand years. These are some of the clearest ocean waters in the world in the clarion clipperton zone. So this is going to be potentially a very large impact. It expands the area of effect beyond that three to 600 square kilometers per year figure that I gave you, maybe doubles it or more. But all of that mud that got carried up to the surface with the nodules there, they have to return that mud and seawater back into the ocean. Well, right now it's a little ambiguous as to where that's going to occur. Some contractors say they'll take it back down to the seafloor. So you'll have a bigger cloud of mud down there. But others may discharge this muddy seawater somewhere below 200 meters, hopefully below at least a thousand meters, if not more, but they're gonna put it into the water column. And that's going to have effects that will expand the range of impacts that that mining will have uh, in the ocean. We don't know how large those clouds of mud will be and how long they will persist, but it's anticipated that these mining operations will occur most days out of the year. So there's there's the potential to create very large impacts beyond the direct impact, of the direct footprint of mining. I think it's also worth thinking about how long it took for those manganese nodules to actually form, considering you can remove them all in essentially a matter of months. The recovery time is going to be, what, a million years? Yeah, yeah. Millions of years. I mean, the animals won't have evolved fast enough to to deal with the absence of, of this habitat. We've done studies in the Eastern CCZ, Craig Smith, and a host of other European scientists, Dan Jones and and others. uh, There's too many to name, but everybody finds that the diversity of everything, microbes up to fish in this portion of the ocean is really, really high. And that's partly because you have the regular mud that you often find on on the seafloor, and then you've got all these nodules. And all those nodules provide all kinds of little different habitats 
for, you know, to host this great diversity of life. And mining it is going to destroy all that. It so, really seems to be a biodiversity hotspot. So with that, with that in mind, I mean, what's your feeling about where industry and science almost collide? I mean, it's easy to say we should never deep sea mine. But I, you know, I'm aware that there are realities to world economics. And as you say, there are like 7 billion people on the planet. And, you know, is it a case of some people thinking mining should not take place, other people thinking, hell yeah, it should. And, but I'd imagine most people will probably fall into some sort of middle ground where it's probably preferred that it's acknowledged that it needs to happen, but it's preferred that it's, it's managed in some way rather than this is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. We should never do this. I mean, what's your feeling on that? Do you think that's realistic to think that deep sea mining shouldn't happen? Or is it just a matter of finding some compromise in there somewhere? I, I think it is realistic that the deep sea mining does, does not have to happen. I do think that there is a huge sector, industrial sector, that thinks that it should happen. There's a lot of people in the middle that, as you say, think that, that you know maybe it should proceed, but we need to have a single contractor proceed first and really fully evaluate this. This portion of the ocean is very poorly known. And so evaluating the actual magnitude of the impacts is very difficult. We yeah. don't have hard numbers. We know it's going to be very bad, but we just don't know over which areas. But I think probably the most important part of the question you just asked is we, you know, we talk about some people think this, lots of other people think that. This is all portions of a very small group of people. In general, the public is unaware of what deep sea mining is. And so the public hasn't weighed in. The vast majority of people don't have an opinion because they don't even know what deep sea mining is. What was interesting is a few years ago, I was, I was teaching undergrad level and I introduced deep sea mining as part of the, the deep sea course. And, and before, before we got into any serious discussions with the class, I said, you know, like, this is what people are planning on doing. This, the, you know, this, this is the, what's going to happen. It's going to be devastating. It's going to be awful. Now, before I said anything else, I said, right, hands up. Who thinks this is a really bad idea? Of course, you know, 100% of the class put their hands up. No, we're not doing this. This is terrible. This is rubbish. I said, well, how about... We don't do that, and hypothetically, that then means we we don't have lithium batteries for your for your smartphone, <laughs> or or rear earth elements for your touchscreens, or and, and all these technologies. You know, if it, if no deep sea mining meant no smart electronics, what do you think now? And I managed to convince pretty much all of them that the complete opposite with, with with just a few sentences, because suddenly they realised, oh no, deep sea mining is terrible. Deep sea mining is terrible, but I really need my smartphone. <laughs> and suddenly they're in this moral and ethical dilemma of like, I really want this, but I don't want it coming from there. And then you get into interesting conversations. So, well, where else can you get this stuff from? You know, you're looking at recycling, repurposing, looking at terrestrial, unbelievably complicated. And then you throw in the industry, you throw in the environmentalists, you throw in the science, you throw in the politics, you throw in the, the international relations, the world economy, and it's not something we're going to resolve tonight. No, it's not. But I will say this. Oftentimes, it's posed as deep sea mining or horrible child labor in Africa, because one of the main cobalt sources in the world is the, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and they yeah. use child laborers. But there is there's a big resource there in Africa. A lot of the companies don't want to deal with that environment. They don't want to support those terrible labor practices, and they don't want to deal with the uncertainty of working with 
you know, less than stable governments and, and economies. But if you took the billions of dollars that one company is going to invest in ships and technology to mine on the deep sea floor and helped improve the situation in DCR, maybe yeah. this problem goes away. I'm not a politician and I'm not a socio-economist. It, it underlies the complexity of the situation. There are certainly companies that would have you believe the only alternative is to mine the deep sea floor, but that's not really true. I think one of the other positives you can take away from this at the moment is that regardless of what happens, regardless of it, if it happens on a small scale, large scale, whatever, it's good and reassuring that there has been a lot of exploration and science and guys like yourself and others you mentioned have been going out there and doing it now. At least we've caught this one at the early stages, which I think is reassuring. So as it goes forward, it's going forward in parallel, regardless of which direction it goes, the industry and science are hopefully moving together and not a case of an industry has just spent 20 years mining the deep sea and somebody's turned around and went, actually, I don't think that's such a good idea. See, see what I mean? Yeah, I do. And, and you're, you're, you're completely right. So much of the time, uh, science has to play catch up with the industry. This yeah. is so common in fishing, deep sea fishing, right? You know, back in the 1980s, they discover this wonderful fish, orange ruffy off the coast of New Zealand, and they start to fish it. They fish it for a couple of years before the fishery scientists go, hey, wait a minute, what the hell is this new species? By the time they figured out that orange ruffy lives to 150 years, doesn't reproduce until it's 20 or 30, all the stocks were gone. They weren't gone, but they had been reduced to a ghost of their former size. In this deep sea mining case, if we continue to do a lot of research, we're, we're going to have some informed uh, risk management. And that, that is a really good thing. The depth I work at, mining's never going to happen. Although Tom and I inadvertently found a manganese nodule field in the deep sea a few years ago, and we're not telling anyone where it is. Honestly, it was beautiful. Good. Beautiful, right? Smack bang in the middle of the <clears throat> ocean. There it is. <laughs> Lovely it was. So our next guest is the UN Secretary General, Mr. Michael Lodge, who is from the International Seabed Authority. So... Michael Lodge has 28 years of experience as a public international lawyer and has a strong background in the field of law of the sea, as well as 10 years judicial experience in the UK and South Pacific. He spent many years living and working in the South Pacific and was one of the lead negotiators for the South Pacific Island states of the 1995 UN fish stock agreements, amongst, to be honest, countless other roles that are probably too long to read out here. But he's also a barrister at Gray's Inn in London. So he currently heads the UN International Seabed Authority based in Jamaica. Uh, so who better to talk to today than this Secretary General Michael Lodge? The first question, obviously, to you is, is the International Seabed Authority, or the IAC, for the benefit of, of the audience who, who people may have not have heard of this before, what is the IAC and what role does it play in the whole deep sea mining business? Well, hi, Alan. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, uh, what is the ISA? Uh, so on its face, the ISA is an intergovernmental organization. It's part of the United Nations family. It has 168 member states, and it was established by the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which was adopted in 1982 and came into force in 1994. That's the sort of official bit. But uh, more accurately, uh, what is the ISA? It is a unique experiment in international relations. I've seen it described as a, a high point in international communitarian government. Wow, get that on the front door. <laughs> it's the only uh, international organization that 
actually has regulatory jurisdiction over a single global resource. And in this case, uh, that resource would be seabed minerals. So the concept behind it is that there is a shared space, which uh, sometimes we refer to as a global commons, uh, and the ocean is such a shared space. Another example of a shared space might be, for example, Antarctica, which has been recognized as shared between all nations since 1959. That concept also applies to at least part of the ocean, not all of the ocean, but part of it. Uh, you know, the ocean is a very complex place, as you, as you know. Oh, yes. <laughs> Scientifically, biologically, geologically, uh, but also legally. So uh, the ocean is split into different maritime zones where the Law of the Sea Convention recognizes sovereignty or sovereign rights over some of those zones. I guess a lot of people will be f somewhat familiar, at least, with the idea that most coastal states uh, have an entitlement to a 200-mile exclusive economic zone. They also have a continental shelf jurisdiction in the case where they have a continental shelf. Uh, and then there's this uh, separate regime for the seabed uh, beyond 200 miles. And that's where ISA comes in. We, are, we have this regulatory jurisdiction over this shared common space beyond 200 miles. I think one of the things that uh, I think your podcast does very well is that it, it, it helps people to conceptualize what is the deep sea and, and how big it is. Uh, I think most people really have very little idea of what 200 miles looks like in the sea, uh, how far away is the, uh, is the deep sea, uh, and how big it is. The ISA, for example, has jurisdiction over 54% of the ocean. Wow. Uh, that is the si the size of the space beyond 200 miles. I was I was quite surprised recently to find out that the exclusive economic zones were only established in the early 80s. You know, it's, it's a relatively new thing. It's I mean, you just sort of take it for granted growing up that coastal countries have a certain amount of space that belongs to them, but it's actually a relatively new concept. Yes, well, that's right. I mean, it took uh, it took many many years and many failed attempts to negotiate a law of the sea. Uh, you know, the, that's why the 1982 convention is regarded as as so sacrosanct because uh, and the constitution for the oceans because it was so difficult to reach that consensus among nations and uh, you know there were there were two previous law of the sea uh, conferences in the 20s and 50s that failed to reach agreement and then it was only by the 70s uh, really uh, leading up to 1982 that uh, we managed to reach agreement on this concept of the of the exclusive economic zone hmm. where are we right now with deep sea mining what's what does the landscape look like right now in terms of how close are we to large scale mineral extraction in areas beyond national jurisdiction so we're, I guess we're a lot closer than we were 25 years ago, but uh, it's debatable how actually close we are. Uh, I think what has happened uh, in the last, uh, say, 25 years is that uh, a number of claims have been made for exploration uh, sites. Exploration has advanced tremendously. Technology has advanced tremendously. Uh, knowledge has advanced tremendously. Uh, and so we are at a stage where conceivably deep sea mining could start on uh, and could be commercially viable within the reasonably foreseeable future. But uh, it's, it's extremely difficult to put uh, a finger on precisely how long that is because there's, uh, there's still a lot of uncertainties out there. What's the position of the ISA in terms of 
ensuring seabed mining meets and leads transparent environmental impact assessments and, and things like that. I mean, how does, how does ISA try and ensure that deep sea mining is not going to be harmful to the environment? Well, first of all, you have to remember that the reason ISA was created essentially was to prevent unregulated deep sea mining. It was to prevent competition for uh, resources to stop. At that time, it was particularly, of course, uh, in the Cold War period, the United States and the Soviet Union from uh, competing, uh, fighting over uh, access to minerals, impose a sense of order and uh, to prevent extraction from taking place unless it can take place in a regulated environment uh, where there is uh, equity of access between, uh, between all states. Another big reason was to simply to prevent the technologically advanced states from going ahead and uh, doing this under the uh, freedom of the of the high seas uh, in a completely unrestrained way. The fundamental principle is that nobody can go to the deep sea to explore for minerals or even less to exploit minerals without the permission of ISA, without a contract from ISA. So, so far there's been, what, 30, is it 30 still exploration licenses issued so far? So, like 22 different countries are into this now? Yes, uh, so far 30 different uh, contracts, they're contracts, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, this this number has increased uh, quite rapidly over the past few years. Uh, you know, we started with, uh, I think, six or seven back in about 2010, and uh, it's escalated quite, uh, quite rapidly in recent years, which I think, you know, illustrates the growing interest in this sector. In keeping with the whole deep sea theme, there's a couple of areas which are really, really interesting, which have already been, they've already been contracts issued for. And one, one of the big famous one is the Clarion Clipperton Fracture Zone. If, if anyone who works in science would probably heard of this. One question that I, I, I came across was, was this idea of designation of large area of special environmental importance. But then there seemed to be some yeah. sort of confusion over so to clarify, those are areas where scientists can go and perform baseline studies, right? But they're not the same areas where the mining may take place should the permits be issued. Right, right. No, they, they, are, they are different. So yes, the, the CCZ, I mean, it's a, it's a CCZ, whichever way you want to refer to it. <laughs> it's, um, it's a very, very big area, about, uh, I think about 8 million square kilometers total size, uh, although the mineralized portion of that obviously is much, much less, probably about a third of that whole area is 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 mineralized, and it's it's probably the best known part of the deep ocean uh, for polymetallic nodules, which mm -hmm. uh, you know is mineral that uh, the resource that is of, of greatest interest at the moment. We've issued, I think, about sixteen contracts uh, across that whole area, but we've also designated these areas of particular environmental interest, or APEIs. These are part of something that we call the Regional Environmental Management Plan for the Clarion-Clipperton Zone. And the APEIs are areas that are set aside, so we will not issue exploration or mining contracts in those areas. There's a network of areas that are supposed to be representative of the uh, various habitats that you find in the CCZ. So they're effectively set aside as a conservation measure. The total area of those APEIs uh, is about 1.6 million square kilometers, which makes them one of the biggest protected areas on the planet. And uh, they were selected through a pretty rigorous scientific process to, to be fully representative of different habitats. And then uh, uh, agreement was, was reached to designate these areas. 
Of course, uh, we we absolutely encourage scientific research in these areas. It would be it would be important to uh, to find out what is there. So this, the second case study, if you like, or example that 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 popped up was was the Lost City. For those who don't know what the Lost City, the Lost City is a hydrothermal vent field. It's got these classic black smokers and all these really interesting vent communities around them. But what was happening there, from what I understand, the ISA have granted an exploration license to Poland for the Lost City. But at the same time, UNESCO have reported that the Lost City qualifies as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. How, how, does, that, how does that work then? The, where I'm going with this is, if it qualifies as a World Heritage Site, what would we have to bring to not grant the license? Because that seems to us raise the bar pretty high. That sort of sort of circled the lost city and said this is a really important deep sea site, and yet still Poland are allowed to go and uh, explore it for minerals. It's, I don't know. It seems a really sort of weird conflict going on there. Yeah. Okay. So so there's quite a lot to unpick in that. Yeah, uh, it's discussion. complicated, isn't it? So first of all, uh, what is the lost city? The lost city is one of uh, many uh, hydrothermal vent sites. Around the world, not just on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, although the Mid-Atlantic Ridge is obviously an area that has uh, been very well explored in the past uh, because it's reasonably accessible. But you know, we believe hydrothermal vents occur pretty much uh, all around the ocean's uh, ridges, which is, I think, about 60,000 kilometers of ridges around yeah. the whole planet. But uh, yes, the Lost City is a site that is kind of charismatic, one could say, yep. uh, has been studied a lot and scientists are very interested in it. And they've had a lot of access to it. You know, they've been studying the Lost City for years and years. Scientists have made their whole careers from studying hydrothermal <laughs> yeah, vents, yeah. which is it's great. It's fine, um, and you know, in the process, they become very attached to them, <laughs> and and you can see why. Because yes, hydrothermal vents are charismatic uh, ecosystems and uh, super interesting. You, you mentioned UNESCO. Uh, so the first point is that UNESCO doesn't actually have any jurisdiction right. uh, in the deep sea. Uh, so um, I think um, you're probably not quite right to say that UNESCO has designated it as anything because I don't think UNESCO can. They wrote a paper saying that it, it would, it would well, otherwise qualify as a World Heritage Status if it wasn't in international waters. I think, that, I think that's what they were saying. Yeah, I think something like that. And I think I wouldn't attribute it necessarily to UNESCO, the organization. Okay. Right. I would say that authors of a paper that was published by UNESCO uh, made that proposition. But uh, it, it, it's not a proposition that really holds water legally. You know, when we grant a contract for, for sulfide exploration, the kind of licensing system that we use is the, is a block system similar to oil and gas. Uh, the way that you find hydrothermal sulfide deposits is to effectively track back from active uh, hydrothermal vents to go off the ridge axis to look for the inactive vents, which is where the mineral deposits are. So, you know, that's the geology of it, effectively. So when you start to explore, you obviously start to explore from a big area, and then you gradually go down from a big area to a small area, which is the area where your commercially viable mineral resources are found. So it's not uh, unnatural and it's not abnormal in any way, I think, for an explorer to start off from the active vents and then uh, work away to look around a whole area and find if there's any commercially viable deposits. So in granting an exploration to con uh, contract to Poland or to anybody else, again, all we are doing is giving them uh, the exclusive right in that area to uh, study the mineralogy. Uh, and at the same time to carry out the environmental studies that I mentioned a moment ago. So uh, you know this is good for science. This is not this is not supposing 
in any way that anyone is ever going to mine the lost city. That's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, first of all, it's, it's absolutely unlikely that the lost city itself has any mineral resources. So why would anybody mine it? To, to tie up the, the scientific side of this thing, you, you mentioned it before, but apparently you have now launched this United Nations Deep Sea Global Database. So I guess yes. any issues anybody has with anything to do with the CCZ or, or, or Lost City, they can then just be directed to this database. Maybe you could describe it better, but I, presumably that's a resource that people can go to to at least see what's being done and, 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 and make informed decisions based on data, right? Well, we call it Deep Data. Uh, that's the name of our database. And yes, all exploration data goes into Deep Data. Now, some of it is uh, commercial in confidence, which is primarily the data about mineral deposits and commercial deposits, but uh, all the environmental data is uh, freely available. So yes, what we're, what we're aiming to do is, uh, because it's a hugely important part of our mandate, is to promote and encourage deep sea scientific research. Uh, and there's two parts of that mandate. One, one, is, one is to get more scientific research done to promote it and encourage it. And uh, those who have the technology and the wherewithal and the know-how and the money to uh, do more of it. And, uh, you know, this is one of the areas that I, I sometimes have issues with some of the ocean initiatives that uh, are taking place, particularly the privately funded ocean initiatives, which are, mm. which are great. Uh, you know, congratulations, um, Five Deeps and all this sort of thing. It's great stuff and uh, oh, fantastic, nice. fantastic technology and obviously good science. But uh, the problem is if this is if this science is not shared and if this science is not uh, is not made available to the whole world, then, uh, you know, that raises uh, raises a number of questions, a number of problems that uh, I, I think really need to be addressed. Well, okay. The, the science is shared. Good. Good. <laughs> I hope it can be shared with ISA's deep data. Yeah, probably could actually, yeah. yeah. No, the issue is, is we acquired so much mapping data, it's taken a long time to, we've got to go through and clean it all and process it and quality control it and quality assure it because it's now over 1.4 million square kilometres of deep sea floor we mapped in two years. So <laughs> we, we would love to just hand it over in a brown envelope to Jebco to just put it on a global repository, but uh, it's not as easy as that. Because they, 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 they don't do any of the post-processing. We have to do it for free and then give it to them. We, we have the same issue. And uh, I, think, I think that's a super important point that you've raised is, is, you know, we have similar detailed bathymetry for the whole of the CCZ, you know. Yeah. Uh, again, going back to this moon analogy, the CCZ is one of the most intensely studied areas of seafloor on the planet. And I think another point uh, there, Alan, is, is is that there is no finite point where you can say we will ever have enough data because we'll yeah, continue sure. to learn yeah. more and more as we go along. And, you know, this is often a point made by anti-mining campaigner, campaigners that, uh, you know, we need to do uh, X amount of more research before we will reach a, a certain point when we'll know enough. Well, no, we won't. We'll We'll continue to learn all the time because that data collection process will never ever stop so there's no threshold then there's no sort of a, a written down threshold either from isa regulations or from the scientists coming to you that says this is the level we need to be at before we can make an informed decision or is it still completely arbitrary no it's not arbitrary at all there has to be there has to be an adequate baseline which has been defined by isa standards already but the the process is 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 fairly standard that you will need to submit an environmental impact assessment 
investment, and that will have to be evaluated. And uh, it will then be determined if that if the if the impact that is projected is 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 acceptable, and, and and whether the mitigation measures that are proposed. You know, this is not anything new in the in the world of environmental regulation. It's uh, pretty much the same as regulating any other uh, sort of activity uh, off- offshore. So could you explain a little bit about this sort of the financial structure behind, assuming that environmentally everything's agreed upon and extraction starts, what happens to the money once it's once once the rocks start coming out of the ground? Well, obviously the financial issues is another big uh, area of negotiation and you can imagine that there's uh, very widely ranging um, views on the financial terms. Uh, for those who really care about this stuff, you can go to our website and you can look at all the documents on this and you can look at studies that we've had done by uh, MIT on the economic case for mining. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I won't go into the minutiae of that. But effectively, the, the, the concept of ISA is that whereas on land, you would have to pay royalties to the government uh, or the landowner, in the deep sea, there is no landowner as such. It's uh, it's all of us. So you have to pay royalties to the ISA, mm-hmm. uh, and those royalties need to be. I think the, I think the actual legal uh, provision is something like they they must not uh, unduly advantage or disadvantage deep sea miners compared to land based miners. Right. Sort of in that in that ballpark. Once we get those royalties, then yes, they are to be shared, and they are to be shared for the benefit primarily of developing countries or in such a way as to favor developing countries and particularly the least developed. So how you get there is a very difficult question that is not yet resolved. The convention itself doesn't give a lot of guidance on that apart from saying we have to develop some equitable sharing criteria. So there are no other real alternatives then with the scale you're talking at and the volume that we think society is going to require over the next three decades. There is no alternative to this. I wouldn't say there are no alternatives because obviously you can go on digging deeper and uh, uh, on land. I mean, yes, this is possible. Uh, You know, we are not in any objective sense going to run out of minerals on land, but you will have to spend more to access them. Mm-hmm. The environmental burdens on land are as great, if not greater, than those at sea. You're going to have to go into more remote locations, and you're going to have to dig deeper and deeper with all the attendant environmental problems that that creates. So let's not pretend that mining on land is environmentally friendly. Uh, you know, it's not. So what would you what would you want to see in the next, say, five ten years? What's the what's the you know the next step for deep sea mining in in a positive way? Well, in a positive way, I think what we have to do is to, we have to finalise the regulations around it, which, are, mm-hmm. as I say, well on the way. Uh, we were we were hoping to finalise in twenty twenty, but unfortunately, we got COVIDed out of that. Yeah, uh, moving all our meetings online and uh, having to defer some work until next year. I think we're in a great position to continue the process next year. Uh, but we've got to get the consensus, uh, allow member states to to sit together and negotiate and reach consensus. Hopefully that can be achieved. And then I think uh, it will really shift the dynamic and the companies and uh, countries that uh, are interested can start to move ahead and uh, start to do the uh, testing that is necessary so we can we can actually get an objective uh, sense of what is the impact. It's one last thing that's more of amusing than a question that I was thinking about this myself, and, and you, you mentioned earlier, so we've talked about this before in the podcast about scale and, and trying to picture all this, and, and the Clarion Clipper, and obviously, is, is massive. So I was, I was sitting the other day thinking, well, I've seen computer graphics of these manganese nodule miners, these harvesters. Yeah. I'm thinking, okay, let's, let's, for example, take Europe. We'll pick on Tom, because he's listening, and we'll put Tom in a combine harvester and tell him to mow 
Europe. <laughs> How long yeah. would that take? And suddenly it becomes quite quite difficult. I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of if, let's say, tomorrow morning it's a gold rush. Anyone who wants to mine, go for it. Yeah. How many square kilometers can you even do in a, in a year? I don't know how long it would take. Yeah, this is, this is a super important question. And I think it's something you really covered well in your storytelling podcast is that, and, and again, I really feel this, that most people in the world, except perhaps Pacific Islanders who, who live in the ocean, have no sense whatsoever of the scale and size of the ocean. The clarion Clipperton zone is massive, right? Yeah. But it's less than 1% of the whole ocean. If you were to mine the whole of the mineralized portion of the clarion Clipperton zone, it would take you about 6,500 years. There we go. We've got a number. So this is never going to happen. All right. And that note, that was fascinating. On that note, Secretary General Michael Lodge, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a, it has been a pleasure talking to you. So there you go. That was Michael Lodge of the ISA. And it's funny to think that if the ISA are responsible for 54% of the planet and Mr. Lodge is head of that organization, then he's responsible for more of the geographical area of the planet than anybody else. And I forgot to ask him what his favorite party he's ever been to was. We'll never know now. We'll never know. I don't know. We've, that opportunity is gone. Anyway, so there's a couple of points that were raised in that interview that I think we need to clarify because it's been a couple of days since we did it and there was a few things that we've been thinking about so I just want to clarify the point about the lost city and the UNESCO World Heritage qualifying status and the lost city is a totally unique low temperature alkaline vent it's not a black smoker as I wrongly said in the interview apologies for that but it is of paramount scientific interest because it's thought that it may be one of the only analogues to currently on earth today that represents conditions of the primeval earth and so on so it is a really unique site and it's not like other hydrothermal vents. Regarding this World Heritage status, UNESCO report number 44, entitled World Heritage in the High Seas, an idea whose time has come, was in fact published in 2016 by UNESCO and IUCN and by authors from both. So if you can, you can easily get it on the internet. Lost City is talked about on page 32 and it explains in some detail why the Lost City qualifies as a, a potentially outstanding universal value in the high seas because it meets four of the criteria for heritage justification. So anyway, so that's just a misunderstanding somewhere down the line, but that was was put out two years before Poland was granted the exploration license. So there you go. Uh, I was right about that, but wrong about the black smoker. Uh, other points are on data sharing. Uh, Organisations like Rev Ocean, Smith Ocean Institute, even Jamstack, for example, they all have open data policies. Uh, the reason why Five Deeps does not have an open data policy is because they have no infrastructure whatsoever. That's why we are slowly but surely putting all our data out on other people's repositories because Five Deeps was not a scientific expedition and it's not linked to an institute. It's literally one private person's uh, quest to dive places and the science has been done on the back of that and we don't have a budget or, <laughs> or any people to do that so that's why it's taken a long time. Other things I thought were interesting was things about environmental impact from exploration activities and I think the clarion Clipperton zone is so huge that the environmental impact from exploration alone is probably relatively small. But I do think that any impacts around vents are probably going to be much higher because these are really small in terms of area. These are island communities that live there. And I think they will be highly vulnerable to disturbance from human activities, including science. I mean, let's not forget that scientists do roam around these places more than anybody and, and regularly take samples from them. So, you know, that's, that's an important point as well. But having heard from both Jeff and Michael, it's interesting to go back to this idea of scale and this mining effort. And I think this perhaps highlights some of the uncertainties that might be upon us, because Michael reckoned that one harvester would take six and a half thousand years to, to harvest a clarion crop. And, and Jeff had an estimate of, I think it was 
15,000 kilometres per year, which would take something like 300 years to do it. Uh, it all depends on how many machines you have and, and so on. So on. nobody really knows. But I think whatever the true number is, the take home from that whole conversation is that we need to remember that these nodules took millions of years to form and they will take millions of years to come back again. So whatever whatever that big number might be, it's still going to be small relative to the time scale of a manganese nodule field. And for anyone listening who, who, who wants to find out more, there's lots of other points. Uh, I think we're going to finish with the deep sea mining and move on to other subjects. But, you know, there are other issues that were embedded in those conversations about things like electric cars. There, there are lots of companies and lots of research and development going on to look for alternatives to uh, what you would normally associate with deep sea mining. Uh, it's still not clear whether electric is the right way to go. There's all sorts of issues around recycling. So you could do a whole podcast on that. But if you want to know more, just Google deep sea mining because it's all over the internet. There are lots of organizations and institutes, projects, and of course the IAC website amongst various others that you can go and get more information from. So have fun with that. We've we're absolutely uh, exhausted. This has been we're tough. exhausted. This is this has been a real <laughs> tough one. Uh, it's a difficult subject because it's complicated and there's lots and lots of politics around it. Uh, I must admit, Tom, it hasn't been that pleasant an experience. Yeah, uh, our, our usual sort of anarchic fun and games. This was uh, this was serious stuff, <laughs> and it felt a bit heavy. This is because we took on an important point and we took on an important subject. We shouldn't have done that. We should have kept with things that don't really matter. <laughs> No, no, this was this was important and this is our our whole angle with, with this was to to talk to the general public about these sort of big big issues in deep sea. But this is yeah, this is such a big one. I hope even our glancing blow, even our just sort of coming through the orbit of deep sea mining is, I hope we've done it justice. And I hope that people listening now know a fair bit more about it, or at least the landscape, at least the big players, at least the broad strokes of it. You you can do a whole podcast series on this easily, easily, because it, it touches every element. But this is such a huge subject. I think it's time we went to uh, Don to find out what Don thinks about the whole thing, because, you know, the show's not over until Don's had his say. And uh, in this episode, Don's come to us with a piece that we like to call Not All Nodules Are Created Equally. My name is Don Walsh, and I'd like to give you a few of my thoughts on ocean mining. It's both a new and an old enterprise. Old because for hundreds of years, coastal communities have mined building materials from the seafloor, sands and gravel, things like that. But the actual idea of commodities of value being taken from the seafloor really began in the 1960s. And one of the most interesting, in my view, early ocean mining efforts is, of all things, diamonds. A company named uh, Marine Diamond Corporation operated off of the coast of, uh, of Namibia at a water depth of 200 meters, and they recovered over 1 million carats from that uh, coastal mining operation. But it's a hard life indeed, and uh, nevertheless, they were successful and were able to uh, attract the attention of the giant diamond cartel, De Beers Consolidated, which bought them out. And now they realize a significant part of their income from offshore diamond mining operations. In 1960, an American engineer named John Miro published a book called The Mineral Resources of the Sea, which pointed out that uh, the possibilities of mining a deep sea floor deposits uh, that could be of uh, commercial value. The primary resource at that time was the manganese nodule, which uh, is rich in copper, 
cobalt, manganese, and nickel. However, not all nodules are created equally. With an ore content comparable to the best commodity resources found on land. Others were simply ore quality. However, the early scientific work of recovering, sampling, and analyzing manganese nodules led to several international consortia putting together complete a mining and recovery system. They went out and actually sampled various areas of the seafloor, recovering the nodules, and then bringing them to the surface and processing them. By the end of the 1960s, it was fairly well understood how to locate, recover, and process the nodules. However, not much uh, commercially viable work went forward for a simple reason, economics. Even with the highest ore quality, it was impossible for ocean mining to compete with traditional land-based sources of these commodities, and the active work tapered off. Then by the beginning of the 1970s, the third United Nations Law of the Sea Conference took place, and one of the items it dealt with was ocean mining. There was tension among the 150 nations that participated in the third conference, and it was generally between the developed and the developing nations. With respect to ocean mining, the developing nations wanted to have technology transfer and assignment of uh, good seafloor mining sites be given to them as a way to provide them with access to what was characterized as the common heritage of mankind. That is, all ocean resources were a common heritage of mankind. This forcing of the developed nations to hand over their technology and seafloor mining sites to third world countries was one of the reasons that the United States did not sign the Law of the Sea Treaty. And indeed, even today, many years later, the United States is still not a signatory uh, to the treaty. Even though subsequently, the treaty signatories did adjust the terms to suit what the United States required, but it was too late. And to date, ocean mining of manganese nodules has never taken place, even though nearly $650 million were spent from the 1960s to 1984 on trying to perfect a commercially viable uh, deep sea mining of these nodules. I have some personal history with all of this as from uh, 1978 to 1983, I was a member of the Law of the Sea Advisory uh, Group at the U.S. Department of State and actually participated in uh, some of the sessions in New York uh, towards the end of the Law of the Sea Treaty negotiations. In the early 2000s, interest in seafloor mining picked up with the uh, better understanding of the characteristics and, and extent of manganese nodule deposits, as well as uh, new sources of seafloor minerals from the so-called uh, hydrothermal vent areas, where very rich mineral crusts would concentrate metallic compounds that are very high ore quality. Of course, this has led to a conflict between uh, conservationists, uh, ocean environmentalists, and the interests of the commercial interests of the mining companies. There are essentially no ocean mining activities of any consequence underway anywhere in the world. Of course, this will change over time, but there is time then for the commercial interests and the environmentalist interests to 
work out their differences to ensure that ocean mining can be done in the less harmful way to the ocean environment. Ocean mining will happen eventually, but the when of it is more difficult to estimate. But considering the world demand, growing demand for commodities, we do know that eventually some ocean mining will begin to take place. Once the uh, fundamental question of economics uh, are solved, can you produce something from the seafloor cheaper uh, or competitively with producing that same material from a terrestrial resource? There is time to do needed scientific research on the fate and effects of ocean mining throughout the world ocean. In my view, the whole issue of ocean mining is not if, but when, because it surely will have to take place to help supply the world's growing demand for essential commodities. And another incredible story from Don. I don't think, does anything happen in the sea without Don having a hand in it? Like I, I no. wanted his opinion on this, but it turns out he's like a key player. He always is. That's why he's done. That's why he's a legend. But he continues to surprise me. He, cont- he continues to tell me a story of just like, oh, well, of course I was there. Wait, what? What? Yeah, yeah, I was. So oh, we, we, we should try and find some more and more elaborate subjects just to see how much Don has done. I'm going to start like hiding things in the ocean, hiding things from Don, seeing if, seeing if I can get something in the ocean without Don knowing about it or it turning out he designed it. <laughs> I mean, it's an important point, I think, because some of the subjects we've got coming up and some of the guests we've got coming up are pretty major. I think we're we're really starting to raise the bar now in terms of guests, especially our next one, our next two. But we're also thinking at some point in the future we want to do something along the lines of cryptozoology. Now that'll be interesting to get Don's take on that. Because he's probably met these sea monsters, right? He's probably met them and fought them and defeated them in ancient Greece. It's probably the reason why we don't know about these monsters is because Don is there protecting us from them. He's he's keeping the monsters at yeah. bay. He's it's essentially a, a Western Godzilla. Every time they surface, he defeats them in glorious battle and then returns to Oregon for a couple of I was, I was I was going to go down the Aquaman route. The Aquaman is actually Don Walsh. Oh, maybe, he keeps maybe. us safe from the evils of the ocean. So some amazing interviews coming up. I, do you want to tease the next one for the January episode? Well, the next one is uh, we're going to stick with the human impacts theme for one more episode. And we're going to bring in some royalty. That's all I'm saying. I don't know why people want to talk to us. We're idiots. If we can, we might do a little bit of a Christmas party. Might see how that comes together. But you might have a a short bonus episode uh, just before Christmas, which is even more unprofessional. (laughs) I think we need something to offset the intensity of what the Deep Sea Mining episode is going to be remembered for. We need, we need something the complete opposite of something important. We need something that's just not important in the slightest. You can contact us at podcast at armatasoceanic.com and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you have an interesting Tales from the High Sea, feel free to record it or write it down and we'll read it out. If you are someone who just has an interest in the deep sea, feel free to send us a question. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company Armatus Oceanic. 
If you would like to explore the deep sea yourself, we can provide technology and know-how to allow you to do that. But if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience, we can also support you with fact-checking, storytelling, and presentations. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Vegans, are you tired of missing out on all the potato-y fun? Well, miss out no longer, introducing Dr. Tom's Vegan Potatoes. All the potato fun, but totally vegan, as seen on the Deep Sea Podcast. Available in regular, roast beef, and birthday cake flavour. Don't delay, take home your paper bag of Dr. Tom's Vegan Potatoes in the rain today. Not suitable for pregnant women, those with heart, lung, or inner ear issues. May contain some sort of analogy about deep sea mining I still don't quite get. What even are vegan potatoes? Alan still won't tell me. He just says they're potatoes for vegans. What does he think vegans are? What does he think potatoes are? Not suitable for children under three due to small parts.